Welcome to the Forest Creek Podcast. I am in a den of nerddom once again. Just like I spent much of my youth. It's a happy place. Don't feel, don't feel sad. This is a happy place full of imagination, full of fond memories spent with friends. And a lot of those fond memories are the basis of a film that we just came out of. I'm here with Jake. Hello. And Aiden. Hello. Been wanting to have you guys on for like a serious recording for quite a while now. I'm very excited. It's great to be here. It's a great subject to come in on. Right. The film that we just walked out of was, we saw in theaters today, is the premiere day, April 1st, for... Wait, yesterday was the premiere day. March 31st. Today's April 1st. Happy April Fool's Day. (laughs) You you almost had him for a sec there. And then you just... <laughs> that was that was it. I got you. you April got Fools. For, for, a, for a split second, it's the nicest April Fools you get for for this year. It was the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Honor Among Thieves. Honor Among Thieves. Yeah, it was Dungeons and Dragons, colon, Honor Among Thieves. And and don't forget, guys, it's with Chris Pine, not Chris Pratt. Yes, we've been making that mistake all day because he happens to be... Uh, yeah, hold, on, hold on, hold on. We... <laughs> I, I got him on it. I got yeah, him you on too, it. Not me. I know who's who. We as a collective, we fall or we uh, stand together, Jake. <laughs> we made the mistake, Jake. No honor among we... thieves here. Not in this den. <laughs> den of traitors, more like. The Mario movie also happens to have come out just recently, and it's been controversially voiced by Chris Pratt. Which I don't feel yeah. like is controversial at all. I feel like he was a great pick, and I don't understand why everybody's so cynical about it. I, I don't know. I just kind of wanted more of that trope. I think I, somebody has. I guess people just have it in their heads that they would prefer the whole movie to be wahoo, Mama Yeah, I don't know how you do it. that for an hour and a half. I don't know. I can and I would it. not be able to watch the movie. Yeah, it would probably. God be bless fun. Chris Pratt. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just take a hard stance on this one thing. I don't really care about. <laughs> thing I do care about: Dungeons and Dragons, and. When I say that I care about it, I almost almost mean that a bit loosely, because this is somebody else's story, it's somebody else's canon. To put it in short, Dungeons & Dragons is the name, the title of the board game that the movie is based on, created by Gary Gygax. Um, Basically, the board game came came out in a time where nerd culture was becoming heavily influenced with the tales of Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien and many other such fantasy stories revolving around orcs and elves and swords and medieval chivalry but at the same time fantasy magic the game has developed over the years and drawn in its very own subculture and that's in a large part due to the fact that it enables groups of people who for the longest time weren't very typically social to come together to play a game something that they were all interested in that and it enables you to exercise your imagination in a way that very few other board games do That being that the core gameplay of Dungeons & Dragons, which has seeped now into many other tabletop RPGs, including Pathfinder that we frequented for a long time, is basically that you have a single player who is the storyteller, often called the Dungeon Master, the Game Master. I'm not sure if there's been any other names for it. Um... I don't think there's any other... Custom systems will try to do like their own take on it, but it all boils down to the same thing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it, it, it originates with D&D in the sense of a dungeon master. Something. And ideally, this person is the kind of storyteller. They are the facilitator of the imagination, while the 
other players around the table are essentially characters in that story. They're often trying to accomplish quests that they make for themselves while they play basically imaginary characters. To further facilitate this and keep track of things, they have papers with their scores written onto them, which often seem like complicated math and gibberish to anybody who is, you know, uninitiated. And to simulate random chance, we have dice rolling. And not just six-sided dice like we're all used to, we're talking the 20s, the iconic dodecahedrons, the yeah. octahedrons. With a full set of polyhedral dice, yeah, you're, you're going to have to tackle this whole thing, and you're going to need a lot of those dice sets, not just one. In many cases. Especially when you start getting up there in terms of the numbers. Now, another thing that Dungeons & Dragons inspired was that video game-esque idea of hit points and experience and levels and scores and stats. Yeah. This constitutes a lot of the mathematics of it. But despite all the mathematics and a lot of the detailed fantasies and mythologies and lores that go into playing these games, fundamentally, at the center of it all... Something very important that has not changed is the fact that this is a bunch of friends having fun with their imagination, which is perhaps the most important thing. We, the three of us, we became friends because largely of this game. Yeah, I would say that's that's very accurate. I mean, I met you through um, through Matt from a Pathfinder game. Yeah, which is heavily <laughs> takes from 3.5 of Dungeons and Dragons. I knew, I knew Aiden before that. We never actually um, interacted in any meaningful way up until that point. Aside from random interactions on like party nights where yeah, where Jared would have you over, and then it's like, oh, okay, well, cool. Introduced just as Ref was through Matt. Yeah, exactly. Um, but over the years, because we have played so many stories and characters together and gone on entire adventures, we lived little lives in our imagination that are as vividly remembered as they are our like in-person camping trips and stuff i think it's funny because we almost annoyingly just keep talking about the same things every single time and i'm guilty of that 100 yes. percent. but i mean it's it's such a prevalent thing even now in our friends group and, and this is in the case where many of us in that group we haven't actually played in a game together for the larger scope. Maybe a few of us, maybe two, maybe three. But generally speaking, it's it's gone from like massive six people parties down to, you know, maybe three or four. I've been gone out of it for like six months. I like went through heroin levels of withdrawal. You you you, you went insane. from having like nine people in a campaign at one point and then delved into this multi-year epic that finally culminated in what I think was the only true finished campaign that I can recall from anyone from our group who actually finished a campaign. Most of them, they go for a while and then they kind of stop. Now, we would love to spend, as Jake just mentioned, the next couple hours just reminiscing about our victories, our triumphs, our losses, our traumas, all of it. Oh, yeah. We have a movie to review. But we have a movie to review. We have here. a movie to review. Let me let me just start by giving everyone a quick overview. The Dungeons and Dragons movie is actually not a movie about people literally playing the game Dungeons and Dragons, but it is a movie that follows a story which takes place in this imaginary world. At least the canonized 
uh, version of it as set by Gary Gygax. You'll if you are a deep fan of Lord of the uh, not Lord of the Rings of Dungeons and Dragons, you'll recognize many of the names that they put out there. For instance, or even some of the magic items or MacGuffins that occur in the plot. And I'm sure the two of you have actually recognized a number of uh, the different magical happenstances, spells, creatures. Oh, tons! Yeah, mm-hmm. there was a lot of there's a lot of there was a lot of creatures that were recognizable. There were some races that I actually kind of had us take a second look at because they did do it a little differently, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, Finish up what I was saying. Basically, a quick overview of the plot: Honor Among Thieves. This Dungeons and Dragons story follows the tale of a band of thieves who was once betrayed and now are picking up the pieces from what they left behind finding out that a member of their own party had was the one who actually betrayed them and are now trying to recover their honor recover their riches recover their status while saving uh, some of their very own blood the movie relies rests quite heavily on the themes of like fatherhood of choices that you make and whether you're making them selfishly or not I found that it really resonated deeply with the idea that if you believe in something, it's possible, which is very core to Dungeons and Dragons gameplay to begin with. And well, I mean, we'll dive in deeper and explore the rest, but I'm curious, what were you guys' impressions of it? Overall, pretty good. Um, the story was very typical for a D&D session. It did feel like the constant questing in order to achieve certain goals to aid you to the next and the next and the next. It felt like a true campaign um, with, you could see, arcs acting as effectively a few sessions each. And as a result, it gave me a vibe very similar to that, as well as it seen all the iconic D&D weapons, spells, monsters that as they appeared... It was definitely an adventure for a hardcore fan and a good introduction to the whimsical and mystical nature of this world. As for the storyline itself, it touches on some very iconic characters such as Saz Tam and the Red Wizards of Thay. Overall, the story though, and the acting, I'll give it a B. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, my, from what I got from the entire plot of it it played into a lot of tropes like Mm -hmm. and a lot of like classic tropes like okay like you can really if you really break it down you can look at it like this you have a father who had the you know good old disney move where they killed off the wife for some for whatever reason uh and his daughter and then the pseudo mom that comes in to try and like take over the parental role but not forcefully it was very natural so it was kind of it's like a sweet moment yeah it's a theme of found family yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah. which is which is totally what a band of thieves are as a found yeah. family but what i found with it is that you have very much had some of the classic movie tropes essentially if you if you look at it it's like one guy betrays the rest of the party steals away the daughter she acts as a princess that is now locked away in a castle by a instead of mm-hmm. just physical barriers but lies and deception and manipulation keeping her there and now the dad gets a gang of people together to go rescue her and i don't find that bad mm-hmm. i thought like okay it's, it's a cliche for a reason <laughs> yeah it's cliche but that's any movie but the cliche it would it, it fits here that's the difference mm-hmm. is that it fits very well um based off of the world that you're in i did find the pacing to be from the from the actual cinema, you know cinematography and movie standpoint the pacing of it was a little rushed 
mm-hmm. in my opinion. I, I found, yes, it was different quests, and they were all leading and cascading to one another, but it was cascading rather quickly. They had maybe two or three different, like, major points, but there was, like, six or seven. I would be able to get behind it more as a better overarching story, but it was just too much of uh, jumping between. It, it's it's one of those things that I think modern cinema has had an issue with. It's it's a matter of the pacing with this game. The point yeah. of D&D is that it is a long-term investment where you are building this story together. It takes a lot longer to get through that campaign, and having to cram it into a movie does make it feel rushed. But what they did with it is they I feel they turned it into more of the show tour, allowing you to see all the different aspects, the grandeur of it. That's fair. Um, without having to explain too, too much, because as well, you could do a 10-day lore dive on the on just the one uh, realm that they lived in. When it comes to fantasy stories in general, you know, we know stories like Lord of the Rings, and more popularly now, we know stories like Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing these all have in common is that they're very long. And just like D&D itself, like you mentioned, one of that big campaign that we actually finished, how long did it take? It took more than a year. It took of actually us regularly just shy meeting. of two years with weekly just shy meetings. Of two years. Yeah. So when you think about, you know, can we fit an entire D&D arc into one thing? Well, actually, that's 100% true. You can. There's such a thing as playing one shots. There's such a thing as playing mini campaigns. There's ways to condense the story. But was it rushed? Yes. And I think that actually suffers because of the way well, it's it's caused and it's the source of a lot of the movie suffering is the way that it was created the story was created is that it was very much inspired by something that the actors themselves played at a table mm. yeah but as a fan of the game or someone looking to get into it i think that is a very good thing i loved the movie for the ability to actually go through it and recognize all these different aspects of this game that i've grown up with now that's fair you know i will agree to that because i think one of the best and the, one of the strengths of this this film is that it showcases things from a starting point for a party to things of an end game point of a party, and that development. It's in a very quick manner, but it does show the development. I was more or less satisfied by the plot, you know, the contrivances of it, the character arcs of it. I, if anything, it felt like at times the characters lacked personality. Yeah, I was going to say there was a few of them where it was just kind of like... Which is something that kind of comes up every now and then in D&D. You know, to the uninitiated, when I tell you you're going to play a barbarian, you have a stereotypical personality in mind for who that barbarian is. There's not much else to it, so when you start playing this barbarian, you act like that. Although the class that you're playing is not necessarily a set personality. You're allowed to have ideas and stuff outside of that. And the same actually goes for, and you mentioned this earlier, race, just for the people who don't understand, there are such things as elves and orcs and dwarves and halflings and all these other different types of races. So when you are creating a D&D character, you do pick a race and you do pick classes. Usually just one class is what people have known classically. Like I said, picking these things isn't actually supposed to be the source of what your personality is. Because that personality is also going to become the basis of your character arc in a story, right? I could be any class and be greedy. Oh, yeah, 100%. So that my character arc can be learning not to be greedy, for instance. Oh, yeah, you could be the most holy of... Gla- you could be a cleric or a paladin, you could be completely greedy. Yeah, a miserly do-gooder would be fun. I think for the uninitiated, though, it is a very good way to 
kind of show them what a typical one would look like when you were to join your very first campaign. That's quite it's true. It's something to look that it's something to look at that you're gonna you're gonna typically see. Now you're gonna see a paladin who is all up if and, I just, and all that sort of stuff. If I wanted to be very blunt about what this is, it's Guardians of the Galaxy, but with magic and fantasy. One hundred percent. And I love it as a yeah. result. I don't think it was as well done as Guardians of the Galaxy. No, no, and no. that's where I'm saying like this is a like I'll give Guardians an A. I will give this a B. I'll give this a solid B. I think I give it's... it a B plus. Okay. I give it a B plus. Um, only on the ground here that I left the theater not hating any of the characters, mm -hmm. which is something that is typically really hard because a lot of times I'll leave the sh like even Guardians of the Gal Galaxy like. I That's really one don't. thing I actually give it is that I didn't dislike any of the characters. No, and, and you know what? Even no. the stereotypical things that they did was actually enjoyable. And that was the thing that I kind of appreciated was that, okay, it wasn't just them doing the same boring stuff over and over again of, you know, maintaining a stereotype. They actually did it in a way that was digestible. And that's what I appreciate it because mm -hmm. there's so many of them. It's just not, a, it's not, it's not digestible. You just kind of cringe at it because it's just something that's, it's so like you've seen, you've seen it a bunch of times in different movies and you're just like, okay, I'm so done hearing this. And this, these ones, at least they were like fresh takes on the stereotype for, to a degree. No, I wouldn't even say like the stereotype was sincere. Mm -hmm. That was, I think the best thing of like, if you want to do anything good, just do it sincerely. And I think yeah. that really played into this movie because we weren't seeing some kind of like, I don't know, comment about climate change buried into the oh God. character arc. No, it wasn't that at all. It was just the characters being themselves. Yep. You we know, there wasn't anything buried in there. And because it was sincere, it was at least more palatable. Yeah. Exactly. I appreciated having a strong, independent woman that didn't have to remind us that she is a strong, independent woman. Oh, 100%. I just appreciated that she kicked ass. Exactly. Honestly, the <laughs> you know, I will say, personality-wise, a lot of them were lacking was her name Olga? Is yeah. that her name? Olga? Olga Kilgore? I mean... <laughs> what a great name. What a classic barbarian name. Uh -huh. That's one of those It sounds like you rolled this. You sounds like you rolled the name. And you know what? That's something that happens mm -hmm. uh, in classic D&D, &D, but, but we'll talk about that in a bit. But the thing that I think I appreciated the most about Olga is that at least she played a barbarian that felt like a barbarian, but it didn't feel like an over-stereotypical barbarian, and she was just fun and cool. Mm -hmm. It was something where I was like, I got I got hyped up when she was just going around, just, you know, kicking ass, like, throwing guards around. Like, it was amazing. It was awesome to watch. Um, instead of it being, like, biggest, uh, you know, proponent of the I'm a woman and... Um, you know, I, I'm fierce because I'm a woman and not just because I am a fierce person in general, is definitely from Endgame, from Marvel for Infinity War, when they had the scene where it was just all the women, uh, you know, delivering the gauntlet or whatever. Mm. Like, you didn't need to, to, to frame it that way. Like, we already know they're they're badass women. Like, let them just... You just needed the moment to come on set so that we can show this shot and then launch a short Disney Plus series. It's just, yeah, it was. I, it let me. I'm gonna be really honest. I got really bored of Marvel because oh, it I just know. turned into CGI crumbling blocks and flashing colors, and then that. Yeah. But if I'm thinking about this movie, so here's the thing: this movie, I was mildly entertained. I wouldn't even say it was a bad movie. You know, it touches on things that movies need. My problem with it is that it's not a good film. 
people did yeah, not yeah. care enough. There wasn't enough art in this movie. There was a lot of, you know, we're busying ourselves with D&D and we're making ourselves fun to look at. And they were fun to look at. But then what it lacked is it lacked meaning. They didn't give enough meaning to each individual scene, every the things that happened. You know, if you watch a, a modern, like a really well done film, even the mundane things will be done on purpose with intent and it'll have meaning ascribed to it. But when I watch some of the scenes in this movie, it occurred to me that some of them are just a way for us to get from one thing to another, mm -hmm. which is something that like, say, the shorter cuts of the Zack Snyder films tend to lack is that he has a really cool picture in mind and the things in the movie are just bridges from one of those pictures to the next yeah which can help in a lot of larger ways because when you do come to those pictures it's extremely symbolic but then the moments in between those pictures are lulled and they don't seem to make a ton of sense and they feel like somebody's wasting your time with a lot of fun colors yeah yeah i i would agree that again this film like aiden said it's a b if and I... it's because it didn't have anything more than it just being some somewhat entertain like entertaining to watch. There wasn't an uplifting score. There wasn't any profound cinematography. There was a couple of fun tricks here and there. Like I especially enjoyed the carriage scene when they were playing oh. with portals over there. Like thinking with portals. That's a lot of fun. That's a really. It was a really cool. Um, yeah. It's honestly the thing about that scene in particular. It was just that it's something that. I can sit there and go, oh yeah, I can definitely see a group of players getting this creative exactly. and being able to do this but because they were smart about it. And that's the thing. Um, I completely agree with you, Raph, that it is 100% not great cinema uh, cinematography, but it is exactly what D&D is. It is exploring all the bits of everyone's backstory. It is multiple stories wrapped up into one overarching plot that is pushed together because companionship is kind of the main draw of the film itself mm -hmm. they play heavily to those themes they have everyone work together and it does feel more like a family they're willing to talk down to each other and make themselves like act more as brothers and sisters would rather than co-workers so let's it, start with this first one um teamwork right mm. because like i said it's very fundamental to DD that this is friends playing together right Mm -hmm. everybody's trying to make it that's actually where the idea of a role-playing game comes from because the idea is to successfully play you need people who are each choosing a role that is compatible with the other roles in order to accomplish your mission accomplish mm -hmm. a goal in the game right which is why we end up with people selecting different classes to begin with that being said sorry i can see jake is like itching I, to add something i, I was just gonna say there um I will say, not only is the teamwork thing a definite part of what it means to have D&D, but betrayal happens so often in D&D in general, uh, where, and that's where I think also, like, having the initial, like, oh, he was part of the party, and then he totally screwed them over and took all the gold, and that is such a common theme that happens in it. Thanks, Hugh Grant. Yeah, thanks, Hugh Grant. <laughs> Remember, a quick, uh, sorry, a quick hard, run through. The two chief stars in this film are Hugh Grant and Chris Pine. And sorry, who was the what was the name of the lady who was playing the co-star with Chris Pine? You know, Chris I, Pine. Sorry, I always am terrible with actor names. Um, Let me look it up right now. Mainly because I I just love their characters more, more so than Dungeons and Dragons cast. Well, that might 
take it a critical role. So it's Michelle Rodriguez, and you know what? Michelle I should have known. I should have known that too, because she's been in so many films. She's quite well known for playing badass women characters. Yeah, badass women. That is her big thing. That's her big. That's her like. Un- unfortunately, I would like. I hate to say, it, but typecast role is just. I am a badass woman. But you know what? If what? you're good at it. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Don't care if you're typecast because if you're great at it, people love you for it. I thought the character was great. I and, thought you she know, was again, fantastic. It was good because it was sincere. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to put this on a poster and then so No, it was just, let's have a barbarian who's going to play a barbarian. Who's going to do it best. Eh, yeah. It's better than... than I'm like... just glad Vin Diesel was not in this movie. Why not? I'm just kidding. Cause, I well, wanted to see him. I wanted to see Matt Mercer. I wanted to see anyone of critical role just in the background. Just I'm gonna draw give, attention I'm gonna to give a controversial, a, second. a controversial take for people who really like D&D. I don't care at all about critical role. I don't care at all about Matt, Matt, Matt Mercer. Matt, Matt they Mercer. Made, they, made, they made like one critical role reference. Did though. they? Yeah, they did. Whatever. What was it? Uh, the uh, fresh, cut, fresh cut grass uh, bit. Oh, that, okay. That is the name of... Uh, is it from, it's from a season three. Season thing, three. Right? Yeah. One of the characters is named Fred Fresh Crust. I, I don't Fresh actually watch Christ. the stuff. The only thing I watch is like the new stuff on Amazon, FYI. So I have no idea about this. I've stuff. watched none that of it. I've listened to none of it. One, I've seen Matt Mercer do a couple of like his talk show things, and that's it. I don't even play Overwatch. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't play um, Overwatch either. I have no idea. Used about to. Put that, that I, have fu- I have funny stories about that. I only but... brought up Vin Diesel because he's like famously in Hollywood is like one of the only people who's really into D&D and like sincerely was into it for a while. Mm-hmm. I think he's still into it. Probably still. They oh, had yeah. him play when he was playing a witch hunter in some movie they had him do a, a short mini campaign actually, to like that, promote that's, it. That's inaccurate. It's actually that he played a witch hunter and he pitched it and then they said yeah let's make a movie about this. When yeah, I was he got watching his, the he reality was the first got his yeah, D&D and, movie. And mm-hmm. honestly it was I did watch the witch hunter. It was it was okay. I would I would give that one like a C plus. It, it wasn't amazing, but yeah. it was it was fun. Yeah, no, it, and that's and that's the main thing I can say about this movie. It was it funny? Yes. It had a lot of moments that made me genuinely chuckle in ways that I hadn't before. There's nothing it that is... made me outright outright bellow laughing, um, but I could hear it in the theater still, mm-hmm. mainly from uh, someone we know. Actually, yeah. um, I, I was la- I was right beside him. I was laughing as well. Those were good moments. You know what? I think I could pick up a little bit of your chuckle in there. To avoid going down a rabbit hole with Dominic Toretto, um, another thing that I noticed about the movie that I quite liked was there was almost like a... The movie, the movie to me is most important when it's referencing something a little meta. Now, mm. it weaves it in a very beautiful way, but like there is a scene, for instance, on the beach where we're getting it to a point where we have our lowest low with the characters, where they're on the beach and they're like, oh, maybe we should just give up. And the main character, played by Chris Pine, gives a bit of a speech to the others saying, we haven't actually failed until we accept that we failed. The D&D game, even though we're in our lowest lows, is not over. It's not gone wrong. It's just, this is a low point. We don't have to argue when everybody leaves the table because that's when it was a bad game. Yeah. When you argue with your friends and it doesn't go well and people don't have a good time, you know, you roll a one every once in a while. Yeah, you sometimes you don't, you don't always win the game. Sometimes you just have the worst luck and you swear you're cursed, but that's just part of it. Yeah, and that's how you tell the story to that's... your imaginary character. 
Oh, yes. But when you get up from a table after arguing with your friends and leave, that's when you've actually lost the game. There's not many ways to really win D&D. Yeah, there's you know? only, there's very few. There. You can accomplish a goal, but it's often just a little goal in the way of bigger goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you've accomplished the bigger goals, oftentimes that doesn't mean that the campaign is over at all. Yeah. There is usually a final a final portion to most campaigns and there is like there is the end goal. Yeah. But again, it's something that you're going to have to hit a lot of those goals on the way to that one. And on that path, you're really going to run into you're, you're not rarely, but actually quite consistently, you're going to run into hiccups and you're going to run into those loads. You're going to run into moments that are going to make you argue with the people that you're playing with. 100% because decisions have to be made. And yeah. it might not be decisions on, well, should we cut and run? Because that's a very black and white decision that they kind of showed there. It's like, yeah. well, uh, insurmountable odds are in front of us. We can't use this thing that we need to be able to succeed to the ultimate goal. So what do we do? We just give up. But generally speaking, most lows, that's that's not what it's about. It's it's more diverse and dynamic and, and what's, what's now, happening. What I would add, the other thing that I thought was actually, I thought it would be very potent if they actually spent a little bit more time on this. The villain in the story... For the most part, she's in the background. Yeah. She just looks creepy and is there. And we don't realize how dangerous she is until later on. Mm-hmm. But because of the silence of her character, we actually don't get a lot of insight into her motivations. We just get blatantly evil, like boring kind of evil. Yeah. Like- and one of the things that I felt, sorry, but one of the things that felt so lacking there was because when she finally did open her mouth to speak, I was like, this is a really cool theme, is that she started going off and be like, finally, I'm getting what I want after sitting through all of your nonsense and your stupid little quips and you goofing off. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Every character in this movie except her is a goofball. No, actually, it's every single character except the party is taking it seriously, which is also... To the extent. Very d and yeah. Very And much. the theme that could go behind that is like, if you're someone who's sitting at the table trying to get like a story out of it, like the Book of Narnia or something like that, you're gonna, a lot of the friend aspects of it are gonna fly over your head because much like Guardians of the Galaxy, this is a lot of silliness that oh, goes yeah. on. There's a lot of silliness that goes on in D&D games. There's <clears> a lot of straight up goofing off because you're playing in your imagination. You're joking around with your friends. Oftentimes you are able to hold it together and have a story, but sometimes people get just get caught up in the joke. And if you're somebody who's coming to the table to sit down seriously, to try to like you know play somebody dark and brooding, you know, or edgy, you're not gonna get what you want. Well, no, sometimes they play to that trope, but it, and, but it becomes a comedy spe- spectacle for the rest of the party because they're not doing it right. It's, they just kind of you know, look and they're like, "Why are you taking this so?" so seriously yeah i thought it could have been more potent if we'd seen her like interact with them or show more personality or something like that i would have liked more taunting for sure i think that would have been something that i mean i don't know based off of how they designed her character it would have been better if she was tormenting them more so throughout the entire thing um in a way like mentally linked up with them a little bit more throughout the thing if she was like the friend that had betrayed them yeah, that would be way more interesting because then we'd actually have this is the friend who goes too serious and forgets to have fun. I will say though, there was a point 
where she did get to have that other interaction, not just the end point, but the one before that when Chris Pine's character was pouring his heart out to, um, to the party. a mirage. Yeah. Right. And she just revealed herself in a way. And that's, that, there's that level of mental torment there where yeah. it's like you just professed everything and then just had this terrible thing just mess with your mind about... I thought I was talking to somebody else yeah. who was important to me. And I was saying something that I've been wanting to say for years and I can't. And now they're just cackling at me and they're about to just absolutely annihilate me because they can. So, it, you know, like there's those those moments that she did have. But again, it wasn't enough. There wasn't enough interaction. Yeah, which is really where this movie falls short is that it feels like it was too much jammed into too little and at the same time it wasn't enough i would have been happy I with feel two like movies it would have been an excellent netflix show i think like I, a season uh, of 20 minute episodes i would buy that i don't know about a 20 minutes i actually think if they were to do it if they wanted to tell the story the best way they could have done it they would have to, they probably would have had to go on the game of thrones route and that would have been 10 episodes. That's way too much. No, no, no. Because no, no, that's, no, no, exactly no. that's exactly what Critical what it, Role did. And well, I think Critical Role is... I don't know how you've been feeling about them, but they, they did, did a very excellent campaign. And they did one thing that I really wish this movie had done justice, and that would be Dragons. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, I, I meant more so... I think, it, again, this goes back to them jumping too much between overarching goals to hit that end goal. If they wanted it to really get you more invested with a 10, you know, episode season um, where the end of the episode is the end of the arc, you could introduce more characters. You could have more interaction, of course, with the big bad evil and the party where they might be stopping them at different points. They might be tormenting them at different points. You could introduce characters more slowly where it has more impact. You could probably kill characters as well where it would have even greater impact because I feel like that's something that's, again... In this movie in particular, they were afraid to do, but it's a reality of D&D is that, is that sometimes, you know, you could have spent, and like we said before, there's multi-year epic campaigns where it can span, I have a game running that's been going on for four years. Characters die, and sometimes it's multiple deaths for that character, and that's fine. Sometimes they can be killed and brought back through various magical means, especially in D&D. There's so many ways to do it, but... The point of it is, if they wanted it to, to tell a better story, they needed to do probably more of a Game of Thrones approach to it, where it's seasons, longer episodes. Yeah. That would have been a better thing. Well, what I'm thinking is that this is probably like a good one-shot style campaign movie, right? And the well, idea is to have the Dungeons & Dragons cinematic universe name up there so that now we can grab another A-lister another B-listers, some other B-listers, some C-listers, and then make a whole other party a whole new campaign. New Rising Stars. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, give the... Like, I would love to see in the future the proper... Sto like, stories from Feyrun, Fe the old D&D stories, Drizzt and the... Uh, I was quite surprised that we didn't see anything about Drizzt. Honest, it wasn't his campaign. Ha I'm happy. I'm no. happy, to be honest. I Listen, the they heroes couldn't spoil of the companions everything. are fantastic. They really are. But if you want to get people more interested who aren't just hardcore fans, 
tell something new. Yeah. Because yeah. nobody wants... I mean, you want to see things. I'm saying I was surprised. I'm happy that we didn't see anything anybody knew. I'm yeah. glad it was brand new stuff. I hate getting... Having to get wrapped up in somebody else's campaign. It's very annoying. It's an all-new campaign with a familiar enemy and familiar spells and items. And honestly, when you look at it, it's great because it means that just like what Stranger Things did, I think you'll probably see it become even more prevalent than it already is now. Because it kind of made a... It went through a different kind of rise like for D&D. You went from this thing in the 80s that at one point people were like don't let your children play it it's cults and devils well, it and it's a demonic cult in the cult. 70s and then around the 80s they had the sat- satanic panic yeah that's what that's what i mean the, yeah. the, 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 yes it's Much just that of the there's history... a point where it was it was it was demonized and then it wasn't until you know late 2000 or early well, 2010s like, it was demonized and then in the 90s it was just for nerds and the thing is that yeah. D's popularity was also correlated with nerd culture popularity so by the time we're into the <clears throat> 2000s and the 2010s and we see this bit of a flip where nerd culture is now mainstream case in point marvel's avengers one of the biggest franchises in the world used to be nerdy stuff it used to be nerds star wars and now we're starting to see D and I'm so thankful Warhammer becoming mainstream. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of that culture that's now seeped into to mainstream culture, and I think part of it is be just because of the you know who they're who is a more prevalent demographic now. Again, the difference is is that you now have this new generation that's coming up that are finally hitting the age where they can you know. <clears throat> experience like movies and have memories and all that sort of stuff and engage in these type of games and these different franchises uh versus back in like the you know 70s and 80s and even the 90s uh i mean the most prevalent like i guess age demographic was baby boomers right they didn't care about this that wasn't what they cared about that that's and it's it's not in general they loved fast and furious which is well but again (laughs) it's because you're showing things that they cared about at the time which a lot of people especially in america muscle cars was a huge thing yeah and it's money fast cars women and they're on to the last one now fast x your verdicts, gentlemen. I we heard Jake. You gave yours. It's a B. Bit. It's B plus. B plus. It's B. B plus. Are we doing letter grades? I usually do out of ten. Oh, out of ten. Out of 10? Uh, out of, I'll I, give it a solid seven. I would give it. I would give it an eight. I expected to give it seven point three. I will give it six point eight. Okay. Okay. So we uh, we have an average of about seven. Yeah. 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 A little over. So that is the Forest Aiden, Creek reviews. Overall um, thoughts. Don't don't do my show. <laughs> don't do. I say the Forest Creek. You don't say anything. <laughs> No, but I found it to be a very good movie, a great intro to D&D, and a wonderful um, game to play as an experienced veteran calling out all the different pieces. I was having conversations with my wife as we were watching, because we like to talk back and forth during movies. And we're You're like, those people. Oh, are we you? are those people, oh, and I called so many of those. Listen, listen, every time I watched your wife and my fiancé lean over and talk 
I just cringed because I hate that. <laughs> Meanwhile, I lean over and chat I with them and tell them why they're it. both wrong and I've got the correct theory. Oh, and yes, then I feel right. vindication. I, I am so smart. I am Aiden. Wow. What a progressive mindset, guys. <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> Listen, women, you're wrong. That's exactly what Aiden's saying. Look, here's the thing. I am very humble in most aspects of life. However, <laughs> you give me nerdy shit, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> I was mildly entertained. I hope they do more. I'm not a hardcore D&D person. I do like D&D. I like movies. I like that they're trying this out and seeing how it fits. Like I said, mildly entertained. That's good enough. I'm content. I don't think it was a good film. And I hope that they take the leap and make good film because like when we, we've played, like I said, not a hardcore D&D fan, but I do love story. So whenever it was my turn to be the DM in my own games, I went really hard in trying to figure out what are people's character arcs, what is the story I can do, how can I deliver as much meaning as possible in this game by the end, right? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you guys, you know, a little bit, I'm, for someone who's played it a lot, I'm not very well read into D&D lore at all. I listened to a little bit of an audiobook about the Legends of Drizzt, because somebody told me that Ice-T reads one of the chapters, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And I listen to it, Ice-T is a good narrator. Yes. When I hear him go, Menzo Baron's on, Driz turned to his companion. It was like, it was really well done. But speaking to like the whole lore thing and the things that I noticed from the movie that were accurate, ones that kind of took me a minute, is the races for mainly the tiefling, mainly because I've always imagined a tiefling not looking like a I ginger kid. did not notice that she was a tiefling until she pointed out that she had horns. I was like, oh, that's right. I, just, I saw the horns. I thought she what? was just a fae or something. What and I was is like, a okay. tiefling? For so, people who don't know. Tieflings are supposedly children born into a family that has some demonic or devilish lineage. Uh, demons and devils being separate in the universe, one being more on the side of chaos, one being more on the side of law, but both being very dark. So and as actually, a result, a child born of that is generally viewed as an ill omen. We actually need to explain something real quick. One of the things that you do when you create a character in D&D, you pick their alignment. And those, basically, we've seen those grids where, you know, there is good to evil and there is chaos to law. And then there is, of course, neutrality. So you end up being a mixture of these two things. You're either lawful evil, you're chaotic good, you're neutral neutral, you're like something. In yeah. So generally speaking, it's more of morally gui moral guidelines and mechanics wise for to help you build your character. And there are several things that they put in there to help you kind of formulate what you're gonna play. Uh, I mean, alignment is actually I think it's one of the things that comes last on the list of things that they they choose typically you'll probably choose your race and then your class but or it might be in reverse that happens quite often it's like the first two choices it's that and it's not really like you do this one then this one you can do whatever you want in that order then you in D&D at least in 5e you pick backgrounds to help give you and round out all your skills and it also acts as a way for you to try and develop your backstory for your character to really try and make it come to life. And Because you are role-playing. There is an element of role-playing in it. Like, obviously, you can play the game by just saying, my character walks over to the door and smashes it or something. Yeah, I think the better thing is to, like, try and engage more when you're doing it. Like, try and actually, you know, say, I'm going to go over the door instead of saying, you know, whatever your character's name is goes over the door. Because you yeah. are your character. Yeah. I, I, and for or at new, least you can be for new people 
I'll say this. My very first time, I didn't put any of what I like. I would deem myself at the time into it. I just kind of made a thing because I was like, well, this might be cool. Um, and it was completely outside of my comfort zone. And then the next thing I made was, again, the same thing because I was trying to see if, well, maybe it's just I'm getting, you know, I'm new to it. I'm trying to get used to it. Yeah. And then it was like after, no, it's definitely not me. And I feel more comfortable doing it because of more experience. But it's definitely a lot like you get to a point where you start putting yourself into a lot of your characters. I always play myself, basically. I've played the same character in many, many games. Mango, which is just gamer tag username. Yeah, that's the OG. On top of D&D mechanics where I just basically play myself. And not just that, he'll also switch it sometimes mid-campaign where he'll like change out a, ca- a character. But it goes from Mango to like, I don't know, Mang Zero was one, was like a robot. I try to put a spin on the name every now and then. Yeah, but that's yeah. the thing. Is when Mango the Waveman always usually pops up in every campaign. Well, that was the Waveman in particular was just that one pirate one. But Mango Mango has popped it everywhere. I can't not be myself in the game. 100%. And like, that's a cool thing to have. I have something similar, except it's not... I play various iterations of myself, and I try and now... I've made, like, my Azrael line. That's, like, the main one um, that's been, like, a prominent, like... Definitely the most talked about. But I also have another one that's fire. So I have, like, kind of two different alter egos that I kind of go through in most of my characters. Yeah. There's a few that I are, like, standalone, but... Now, I want to ask Aiden the same question, but before we move on, I wanted to, I'm curious about one thing for you. What's that? What is, do you have some kind of naming convention? Like, how do I go about it? Because I always just call my character Mango, and it just kind of stuck there, because it was like a, it was close enough to Django without being Django, <laughs> <laughs> and it sounded, like, the Ango sound was really fun. I was That's like, what Mango, it's there, a fruit, yeah. it's like fun. Um, when it comes to naming... I the last name thing was more of like okay what do I think is like a cool sounding last name and I'll take inspiration from different cultures for their pronunciations and stuff and how they would spell it but like first name wise it's generally I just kind of like make the character and I sit there and I'll actually just sit for like I don't know maybe two hours and I'll just think about what do I actually what does he feel like for a name Hmm. there's a lot of like times parents talk about you know we have baby names picked out but as soon as they come out, it's like, well, they're not actually that. They're more of a this, so I'm going to call them this instead. So it's me just sitting there trying to birth this character after going through yeah. all the steps and going, what is your name? And I'll sit there and I'll think for so long. And then finally, I'm like, that's that's the right feeling. Hmm. Yeah. I usually just try to like literally translate a meaning, either a meaning or a sound. I mean, the one, the only one that I will say was based off of a defining kind of characteristic and background is Azrael is like, you know, it's like it's an angel. the angel of death. It's the angel of death. So anytime I bring in a character that's playing an Azrael, it's because I'm trying to play something that's going to be a problem for mobs and, and that sort of things. Otherwise also, you know, uh, what is classically known as a murder hobo. Not quite. No, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I definitely do. I actually, I, I played one murder hobo one time and as fun as it was because of the way the campaign was set up, I could kind of do it without really stepping on toes in the party. We'll, we'll circle back to Murder Hobos. Aiden, what kind of characters do you play? How much of you are in them? Always a 
small aspect, but I try to explore something new every time. And as for naming convention, I kind of do an in-between of what you guys have. I do sometimes look into like uh, the meaning behind the words and finding a name that translates. Uh, but sometimes I'll just go with the flow and create something. And this yeah. can result in absolute chaos, like one of my more recent creations, uh, Zekel Nakamura Gan, the uh, Wizard of uh, Discord. Sometimes your names are so glorious. What, yes, I know. So Thank amazing. You. They're so difficult. What <laughs> level did that character come in at? Uh, so we're coming in at level ten for Jenna's campaign. So this yeah, wasn't. This 10. isn't like a yeah. level one. We're no, not no, no. This, this guy is... start his wizardry. No, no, no. You, they, the party has not been introduced to him. He's coming yeah. in a little later than everyone uh, else. You've just been introduced. Yes. And what have I done so far? <laughs> what you did... you uh, made a bunch of gibberish up and cast a spell. And then it did nothing. <laughs> you, I think you tried to set some vines on fire, and the plant, for some reason, has fire resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, when you first start playing any kind of video game, your first thing you want to do is press all the buttons. 100%. At the very least, you want to press the buttons. If you if you understand how the game works a little bit, and that's like, I remember DMing players who were DMing, like, running the game for players who weren't all that interested in the story, but just wanted to have fun being their character. Yeah, and that's also a really cool thing to like let them do, because they they have a list of cool powers and stuff that they want to use immediately. Yeah, and you know what? That's something that I think you can encourage as a as a DM and but should encourage. Sometimes that gets off the chain, and we get what's called a murder hobo. Yeah, to a point. I think there's three extreme tropes that happen in most. And when I say hobo, I just mean someone who refuses to have a plan. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. But uh, as I was saying, there I think in pretty much the D&D wide community there's three main people that you know about in every campaign and that's the murder hobo because they show up way more often than you want almost one I would I would say there's an average of about just under one every single time you start a campaign there will be one murder hobo usually and it might not be the obvious way but they might have justifications for why they do it at every turn even though it's not what the game's completely about like part of it's about combat but the other part of it is about role play um the other one that you'll see is the rules lawyer that's another big one well that's not in the rules so that shouldn't happen it should be this and it's like well i'm the dm so shut up they don't not always have that accent but you know it just happens and the third one is the person that is indecisive that is the last one and it's usually with new players if you're a new player or you're about to start a campaign you've never played before, my advice to you is be bold. Don't just sit in the, in the background and sit on the sidelines, but also don't try to talk over people and Some try to work with people. have fun just being the quiet guy sitting at the game. That also is true. That's some, some of my favorite people to play with were the quiet guy sitting at the game because yeah. I talk a lot. But, you know, As there is a way to do it where... There's a reason, like, you could be deliberately quiet and attentive, or you could just be somebody who is having a hard time keeping up. I think, actually, attentive is a better word. It's the person who's not attentive. That And it's like... Don't look at your the, phone while playing those a are game. The, yeah, don't know? look at your phone while we're playing a game. Don't yeah. get sidetracked talking about your, your other game that you're in or that you're running. It's not worth it. You should be focused on what you're doing right now. 
You should be focused on the story in front of you. And if you're not feeling that level of immersion where you want to do that, then maybe you should talk to your DM because, because you're only, not at that point. It only really works when two or more people share the memory. They share the imagination. Yeah. And if you're not attentive, you're not sharing it. Exactly. Because you're not sharing it, you don't get to have as much fun as we are in it. And you're not really experiencing it. Yeah. You're just kind of watching people do stuff all the time and you're going, okay, I guess. But you're not actually like in the moment and enjoying what's happening in front of you and sharing in those memories what does nat 20 mean what does nat 1 mean what what, the, what am i talking about here yeah honestly the critical fail is like honestly my favorite mechanic it's even better than the critical success it's just because it's like you're trying to do this thing and you fail so spectacularly that not only do you like miss your attack I... but you fling your sword into your buddy's shoulder the first time someone told me about confirming criticals i was like my heart was broken I was like, I just love the moments of magic where you roll that nat 20. Yeah, like, mm -hmm. just let it be. Look, well, I, think that's I think for us as a like a collective group, we don't confirm criticals. I, I start, I, no. it was a th rule in Pathfinder that we were going to start doing, and I was like, why? <laughs> the point of D&D is to build and release tension throughout the course of the game. As it is with any good story. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the the Nat 20 and Natural 1 offer those extreme examples in those instances while you have the scale of everything between plus your own innate skill to determine success. Yeah. Yeah, you want to keep that beautiful, memorable moment when you roll that Nat 20. You want to make it worth something. And you don't want to roll again right after and be like, of course, when you roll three nat ones in a row and lose your character, you can kind of good damn the dice gods. That did kind of happen to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you know, happened there? I wish I could say it only happened once. I you lost multiple characters from nat ones. Oh, it's just like a series of nat ones. Like you just have. You ever have those bad days where it's just nat one after nat one? Yes. Now imagine each one of those is on a life saving throw. You know what's the funny <laughs> thing is I don't know why they were it... under attack by pirates and he died because he got hit by a bomb. Oh, I got that hit sucks. by a bomb. And it prevented me from steering the ship, which I then nat one the controls on and basically rammed head first into a canyon. And then as he made his getaway jump ship, spreads his angel wings, he's soaring away the ship above. Oh my <laughs> just, god. Just bombed to body. Oh my god. <laughs> I think... You know what's the funny thing about nat ones? I typically, I don't know why, I typically don't roll them during sessions that I'm playing in. It'll happen every now and then, but when I'm a DM, the amount of nat ones I roll are ludicrous. It's just, it just keeps coming back, man. Like, I'm trying to, like, you know, have this very, like, intimate, serious combat where it's, like, yeah. life or death. It's hanging in the balance for both, because I want that to be the feeling, and suddenly I just roll, like, four nat ones in a row, and it's like, the guy's dead. He's dead, all right? You killed him. He's dead. Congrats. Whenever my players has a nat one, I try as much as I can to make it. This is an opportunity for comedy. It's not an opportunity to make somebody feel bad about their luck. Yeah, that's true. That's every once in a while. It's like, well, you decided to do something very daring or dangerous, and then you ate shit. Yeah, pretty that much. was all you. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't want to. I don't want it to be like, oh, you tripped. Oh, you tripped and landed on a trip wire, and a trap went off and killed you. Yeah, you don't want. Yeah, that. sometimes like, that happens. Though. But that is, but that's situational again. But it's that it's the whole premise of it. It's like it's either a spectacular success, or an even ju or just as spectacular fail. That's what a nat one and a nat twenty are. So here's something I want to ask you guys about. Do you ever play campaigns out of the books? 
No. Yes. Not a fucking chance. I am trying to run. I will be trying to run one of those well, campaigns. You went as far, future. Jake, sorry, as to write your own books. Yeah, actually, More that's very true. So, uh, for the viewers out there, if you're wondering. I, I, I will pivot back to you, but, like, Aiden, you actually do use the books. Yes. You actually have the books. You brought them here with you. Uh, I have a couple of the what core are the rule books. Sacred texts you brought with you. Uh, I have brought the Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Manual from 5th Edition. Dungeons and Dragons. These are like the, the core, you know, core. These work. are the core three that you'd recommend to anyone attempting to DM. At least from, yeah. Running a game, it's recommended you would have all three of these books. So it's about $150. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever actually read a page out of any of them. And I've been playing, and I played this game for a solid few years. So, <laughs> just saying. You don't need Absolutely it. not. You no. do not need these books. I've collected them merely but, for collector's sake there's also like a ton of interesting and important stuff in there that can really enhance what you're doing yes and as a result i do understand the game to a depth uh beyond i think a lot of our if you were going to be a rules lawyer you should probably get a law textbook i attempt you have been accused of a number of times and i defend myself that i am a rules traditionalist i understand that the dm is allowed to rule it any way they choose it works out i always let it slide because i don't know i don't know the rules yeah (laughs) which is is why i love playing your game because i will always play a spellcaster since you have no idea what's on the spell table i'll be like well you can do whatever you want (laughs) hey hey, raf i'm using this thing called thunder kill it kills every thing in a 40 foot Jeez. radius yeah whatever i'm not reading it's a level I, one spell i was actually i just make something with a bigger one of that yeah sorry what, what was it Aiden? sorry i was reconsidering playing in Raffiner for a while and um i was thinking back to all the times that we've met the super powerful mages in your world and the great artificers selimus and like jeffries and i realized something as powerful a magic uh presences in your world jake can you name three spells that you've seen Raph actually cast? No. <laughs> There's, in fact, there has never actually been one that I've witnessed. I don't think... Except for, I think, one time. One game. He said, you see five glowing balls of energy wisp at you and strike you in the chest. And he's like, they launched mag- magic missile. And it's like... Holy crap. Oh my god. He used a cantrip. What? Usually First it's like spell. it's usually like yeah, so this vial of black ink, yeah, they throw it at you and it explodes in a fifty foot radius. Make your death safe yeah. now. You have a very, <laughs> That's you have usually a... what it is. Is it's like I'm gonna throw in this wildly unbalanced custom well, item and just see if you live or not. That's just like me going. I want to have nitroglycerin in the game. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's I don't want to have nitroglycerin in the game. Just name it monster. Right? Yeah, yeah, you have super magical effects, and it's awesome to see. But spellcraft, as a result, is such a weird phenomenon in your world. I'm a little yeah. guilty of that myself for my own game. Um, like, I just let you make spells. Do you remember that? I yeah. was like, yeah, you want to make a level one spell? I, Go for I it. still can't. The character I've made there is entirely busted in every way. And yet, but the thing that I think that everything both, balances out because well, yeah, we make me we like all three of us make. I have to really admit, busted custom homebrew stuff. The first thing I learned from Pathfinder that made it so fun for me to play was the idea of min maxing. And then once I saw Aiden do it with Babadook and basically become a god purely by playing the numbers I was like it's not about the numbers it's about the drama of the game yeah and that's so something when that... you make something that makes you strong I just 
What is something I can make that's slightly stronger? Right? It's like, I'll introduce as much power as you have introduced. But yeah. every once in a while, I'll come up with something like technologically that's interesting and I'll try to incorporate it in the game or come up with some basis for it. Yeah. And when I do that, I've usually introduced something that's very powerful and can <laughs> shift the dynamic of a game, whether it is like a gun or an ex- uh, exploding vial of liquid yeah. or if it's like some kind of laser or I don't know what else I've had in there. I've had ships. You gave me a gun that used a D20 as its damage dice, which is insane. Yeah, the troll rifle. Yeah. For the new people to the game, mo- like the biggest die you ever use for damage dice is a D12 because that's the next biggest dice next to a D20. I don't know. You can roll a D100 for a damage dice, can't you? I mean, you can... But that's you're thinking too absolutely small. ridiculous. One D twelve. If you think one D twelve is all you can roll, you're thinking too small. No, I'm t- not saying one D twelve. I'm seeing a D twelve as the dice size, as the traditional largest okay, roll. Yes. I'm not saying thing. that it's our largest roll. We have had weapons that do D one hundreds or three D one hundreds or ten D one hundreds, even twelve D one hundreds. Even in core game, you can get some pretty insane numbers. Listen, <laughs> there is a way in D and D where you can actually make it so you have near infinite attacks. There is an actual mechanical way of doing it. It's dumb, but people have figured it out. It's a samurai build. It's stupid. It's using a bunch. It's using a busted thing from the spell list as well because you need somebody else to help cast cast it for you. But you can do it. You can. You don't do even need to like play numbers in this game to like really break it. You just need to have a certain mechanic that'll just help you get through the game. If you think about a character like uh, Josh played Phylus. Phylus was Lorel. a character in one of the games that I ran where he just had a good trick he could do with his sword, which he could parry any attack you physically threw at him in order to negate it and gain an opportunity to attack himself. And this one strategic advantage helped him get over like any enemies that I planned for him to encounter in the game. Oh, yeah. I don't think I think there was maybe two times I even saw Phylus come close to going down. Right. That was it. I remember the first time it was like session like forty two or something. And it was the first time in like I think thirty games I even saw Phylus get hit because he just parried everything. So if you have a good trope, there's a way to do it. I mean, um I mean I remember you telling me that Lixton had an ability to effectively reduce somebody's attack range to zero, so they can't attack. There are so many ways around what Phylus had. It's just a matter of having to have him face off against those, and he opted to fight things where he would have the advantage of being able to use his ability. I got a really good example of this, too, besides just that ability. There's an ability that I had with Tiberius. Uh, I could just shape the earth around anything, so if I wanted to, I could just make a ball around him so he can't get out, and he'll die of suffocation. At one point in an earlier game that I ran with Matt, yeah, who was actually on the 90s show episode of this podcast, he asked me if he could combine two powers, Spectral Hand and Aboleth Lung. Oh, to do the Death or, Touch? I'm probably butchering the name, but basically when the Aboleth Lung one hit you, it was somebody had to touch you to cast on you the ability to breathe underwater. But you lost the ability. Which means you can't breathe air. Yeah. So he attached it to a ghost hand and would just touch random NPCs, non-playable characters, with it to murder them. Which is like a great way to be a murder hobo if you really wanted to get away with it that badly. I always found that he had very creative ways to be a, a murder hobo. Mm-hmm. 
when he was playing. I was a rules traditionalist. Matt was a rule lawyer. And, yeah, a, power, and a power gamer. I would I would agree. Well, a lot of us are power gamers. Very true. Like, I mean, let's be real here. Like, I don't think any one of us here can say, oh, I had never I, mid-maxed or power, tried to be a power gamer. I never power game to have the biggest numbers on the sheet. I did it to have the most, like, power, whether that was political or money or just imposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Aiden... Your characters, I've no, I noticed though in the beginning when you used to be a power gamer, and just like do the numbers. Eventually, you would get bored with the amount of power you had. And that's the thing. What that led to was me, me developing more of the role playing side that I now embody. It was I reached a point, especially on Babadook, where he had gotten to a, to such a ridiculous power level where he was basically oh, untouchable and so the end goal because he was that powerful and there wasn't really any true challenge except for things that were core to the game and that BDM specifically placed to challenge us he just had to become more of a role-playing character and that's why i got more into the characters and less off of the pure stats mm-hmm. i wonder because I do recall you played like another character in Goldfinder was quite similar. In the beginning, you played our captain and our captain until like you just got bored with the with the guy. And that's the thing. I was very indecisive, especially when I was learning Pathfinder as a system. You never had much of a personality. And that's the thing. I don't yeah. when I'm trying to learn it. That's why I like to stick with 5e. I could easier focus on the... Yeah, which I think is a, a significant thing. I, I noted a lot of the spells that they used. Um, this Displacer Beast I had known about. I had never actually actively seen a representation of it, so that was kind of cool. Um, the the owl, owl Bear was the first thing. Yeah. I mean, that one was a little bit like, well, a druid by standard game rules can't turn into it because it's a magical beast and not just a beast. I think in previous editions they could, and yeah. that's... That's why you're thinking it's an earlier edition? And that's the thing. I think it mixes in some aspects of it. Because, mm-hmm. for example, Mordekainen's seal and uh, the Helm of Disjunction, there is no such thing in 5e at least, but Mage's Disjunction is one of Mordekainen's spells in an earlier edition. Yeah. A magic item attuned with that and a new Mordekainen spell. Makes sense that it's the same lore, but maybe different editions intermixed. I wouldn't actually be surprised if some of the movie stuff has influence over the update for um, Dungeons & Dragons 1. Possibly. I haven't taken a good look at the rule set yet. I've only heard rumors. Yeah. But uh, very... I read some of it. They're changing it from backgrounds or from races to ancestry now. That was the new thing that they're doing with it. Mm. Which I think is just a encouraged to be diverse so it's like your answer your main ancestry is elf but you look like a human or mm-hmm. you can have whatever, whatever background you want and identify however you want that's exactly right that's what it is mm-hmm. yeah which um i don't know i kind of like the race thing it was kind of fun in the context that there is a difference between uh dwarves and elves and that they dislike one another because the elves are face speaking Nightfear, backstabbing threats. No. Uh, and dwarves are nothing but pudgy, small men who grovel in dirt all day. And that creates the conflict that makes D&D interesting. It's overcoming that. And we actually saw some of that in the D&D movie. We haven't actually touched on that well, part yet. Well, it started yet. off with, because it's all token-inspired fantasy, 
The dwarves mean something and the elves mean something. They're both different aspects of human nature. So when you're playing one of these things, you're essentially choosing to play a stereotype. But the truth of the matter is, they were invented as stereotypes because Gygax didn't design this to be a game that you're that immersed into that you're role-playing everybody. First ED&D was just dungeon crawling. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. my character chooses to do X. It was it was the what we now utilize for most of our other tabletop games that are short board games that you buy like like the Dark Souls board game for example, very similar to that. It's just a dungeon crawler, the um Betrayal of the House on the Hill, Mansions yeah. of Madness, all these like big kind of games, they're all just dungeon crawlers. That's it. And that's what first edition was. For sure. Second E is when it started coming out, though, like, okay, people were in taverns. They went yep. to towns. So now you're you're actually seeing the immersion of the traditional RPG. When we set up the game, we started enough. to make up characters. And that's what gave it its first taste of that kind of pathological freedom that comes with making your own story. Yep. Third E, things got more complex. Now you could build worlds. Yeah. 3.5 was... We started inventing our own things. And then Wizards of the West Coast, Gygax Company, decides, well, we're going to just do a add-on package. Extra books. More stuff that we came up with that you can use to play D&D while still being in canon. But at the same time, they kind of just opened the floodgates of now you can keep adding on your own stories. Yeah. Since then, D&D kind of has become a model of for the tabletop RPG, the tabletop role-playing game that you can really apply anything to. Yeah. If the D20 system was built around this and has created some amazing spin-offs. Pathfinder, we've seen stuff like... 13th Age is another one. Mm -hmm. You've got... Uh, the Cthulhu game series. The Warhammer got, games use their own ones, the, right? They have a D100 series, which yeah. is very different. Um, but it's based on the same principle. These role-playing games with... It's more percentile rather than additional and more... We're just talking about the wider model. Yeah. yeah. There, there's, there are have so, adapted. There and are so many. There's Legend always of the unique, There's always unique creators developing more. <laughs> oh, you want me to do my Shameless plug. plug. Go ahead. Shameless I'll plug. this one. This is yeah. when you do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a spin on the D20 system, but it's not the D20 system, obviously, for lots of reasons. I don't want to be under the OGL of um, Wizards of the Coast. They've, re they've redacted it now. You're though. right, but that doesn't mean that like, they won't put it out again. So It no like, longer had to be medieval fantasy. I know, it could be anything. You could, could be like, anything. Shadowrun is a very popular sci-fi one. Um, Starfinder is the, you know, the love child of Pathfinder that they made that was... A really cool system for a sci-fi adventure um you have the there's like four different star wars rpg games in fact i have one of the books here it's the one from 2000 uh and i think two yeah that's, and that's everything the year in between some people play games where that take place in like you know you're a 1940s noir detective oh yeah there you know it's it's the basis of hey do you want to play an rpg here this is this is like a generalized set of rules if you can look at it and deconstruct the different aspects of it you can make anything i tend to try to blend fantasy and sci-fi in as unique ways i can i've seen other people do different takes on it aiden i've noticed sometimes you're more of a traditionalist mm -hmm. by comparison I you're think you're, you might have been the only person who ever tried to run a campaign out of a book in our group. He is the only person. 
the the closest I still to. Mm. the closest second to that has been Jared, who tried who essentially ran a homebrew campaign, but in the actual canon lore world of Pathfinder. Yeah, yeah, it basically turned into we tell him we want to do something, we just come up with, and mm. then he would read into the Pathfinder lore and support that. Yeah. yeah. Here's where you would go to accomplish your goal. But you've ran two games, Horde of the Dragon Queen and... Out of the Abyss. Not long-lasting ones, but it was... Uh, I nearly finished Horde of the Dragon Queen. I hate this because the party developed internal issues between a couple of players. All right, well, two sets of players each, actually. Was I in the first one that crashed and burned in, like, one session? Yeah, you guys yeah, destroyed that, was... that. That's not the one I'm talking about. I actually fault. managed we to were, get through the, most... The villains showed up and were like, we'll join you guys. Yeah. <laughs> you just... just in the run, run with it, like, okay, now I get to make characters no, that fight yeah. them. The problem is that two members of the party wanted to join, two members of the party wanted to fight, one guy just wanted to and as a result, I have the I have a three-way party split as an early on DM. I just closed the book and said, this isn't working out. Yeah. I mean, I've ended campaigns because of in, internal conflicts that have happened. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I've lost the inspiration to do this now. Mm -hmm. My biggest reason for ending campaigns is just becoming too busy. Not being That's a I wish I had too. that yeah. issue as like the main reason. I just couldn't deal with the anxiety of like, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. And hoping for to make it come true when we actually oh sit down and play God. this game. Yeah, yeah. And then being like, ah, you know what? We're just unable to find the time. We're all busy working jobs and other responsibilities and whatnot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was the sad part. That is the saddest part. I really do miss... I really miss the early days of when I got into it because it seems like that's when everybody goes into it. And if I really get into something, I go hard into it. Like, there's that... It was, we, we played... Matt from, and Jared's basement yeah. and then Josh's basement were our two hubs. Matt and and we met there like multiple nights a week. Matt and Jared's basement holds so many memories from so many different campaigns. Yeah. And like that's where my whole like entry into this started was down in that basement playing Pathfinder. And he was just like, Hey, I know you're not really huge into like the the you know fantasy stuff so i mean if you want you can play a jedi i'll make it work and i was like yeah sure. and then eventually he died and i made more of a fantasy thing and i made something absolutely atrocious but just like a monstrous character yeah, i also he was so complex mainly because you couldn't discern what the hell he was he was the real like heinz 57 man like he was just a mixed melting pot of a character he was a skinwalking beast witch that also happened to have a draconic ancestry that turned into a fucking vampire well you know there's a scale that's, between that's the scale of it right that's just stupid it's so dumb there's a scale between orc barbarian stereotype that's very boring yeah and I'm a half orc, half barbarian, half half elf, half halfling prince of yonder who was scarred by this wizard in my backstory, and it's like, dude, we haven't even started playing yet. Yeah, there's, <laughs> no? it's like sometimes it's nice to make it nice and simple. I mean, I've been guilty of making really really dark backstories i love it when it's nice and simple and becomes complex over the course of the journey i just love that first text i got back to you after i sent you tiberius's and you're like dude what the fuck <laughs> i don't recall can you remind me uh yeah he essentially he was uh he, 
You're like, damn, Jake, what the hell is that? Yeah, like, What's that uh, going to bring into the story? You know, What's th- the- there's, this, there's this idea that behind every character we make, there's a piece of ourselves. And when I hear that, I have to go, is everything okay? <laughs> it's like, What's what's in there, Jay? Actually, at that point in time, I was still very upset about what happened to Jensen. So, like... <laughs> yeah, you were just trying to mull over it. So, yeah, can you yeah. tell, like, to people who have never heard the story before, have no idea what's going on. You guys did this, were in the story. You were Jensen and Lixton in one of my games. For, mo- for, most, for a good portion of it, and then both of us changed, and we became... Uh, Tiberius and we, oh, Ivan. Ivan, yeah, that was the end results. We okay. had a gang of adventurers questing to put together a solution to s- save the world before it ends, and the end is always not. You're bonding throughout these activities, Jake. As we discussed earlier, you kind of took on that leader, kind of father of the group, almost. I mean, he was also the oldest character, so it kind of made sense why he would act a little bit differently than the rest of them like some of them yeah. were young and... there was definitely a lot of found family in his story um, he was like kind of coming into his father's footsteps of being a knight with a very grave task to handle and at the same time he's kind of leading this group of adventurers who are struggling to you know help cooperate with each other despite their differing personalities it was one of those things where it was like it's not easy to keep everyone on the same task. Like, yeah. really, like, Josh just wanted to go kill people constantly. <laughs> That's all it was. was um, for revenge. He was just out, but it was anyone. It was innocent people, too. He just murdered he them. He didn't care if they were in the crossfire. No, Meanwhile, he was we like, also had Lixton, who was played by Aiden. Uh, Lixton had the capacity for brutality, having been a barbarian, but he had temperance. He did not want or seek conflict that was unnecessary. As a result, though. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, if you piss off Lixton... Hold on. You murdered an entire cult in your sleep. He had... Basically, Lixton was a barbarian who came from a savage background, but at heart, he was a gentle and kind person. That's very true. He was very selfless. And along the way, throughout this adventure, the previous thing that we had encountered to this incident that we're leading up to was this journey that... Lixton had taken to like see what lays at the depths of his rage at the depths of what is in him as a barbarian and then opting to like let's choose kindness now let's move on from this and then we were confronted with a plot point in the story where Lixton's old barbarian cousins cousin tries to persuade him hey you should come with us we're gonna go do something else we're gonna go do our regular barbarian business it'd be fun to come on a raid why don't you join us cousin and then he opted to agree, more or less, a little bit. No, I, still kind of I remember him saying, refused. actually, I don't want to do it. I'll, you, I won't stop you, but I'm not going to be a part of it and just stayed off on the side like kilometers away. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the other two characters were found themselves trying to gain favor with this new barbarian. I was more so... It was you and Josh. I was trying to, um, at the time, it was more so to try and get more information because I thought they had a little bit more information about the Black Knights. So I was trying to, you know, portray myself as one so they talk about it more openly. And then that obviously didn't happen. And some things were done that... Basically, they ended up attacking a a house of innocent aristocrats. They were, you know, they were aristocrats, but not like in a bad way. They were just 
rich there's upper middle class people upper, upper they had their own class, little yeah. country home and you guys just stormed it murdered half them i mean we were also lied to tortured like one, we were told by burnt it down yeah but we were also told by the barbarians which we should have just incited because we're idiots you know that they owed the money for something and they weren't paying it was like at that point it's like yeah okay we can go scare them into it and, and then things yeah, got out like, of hand like at best the best case scenario you're doing a barbarian mob hit yeah pretty much. <laughs> you're not wrong I didn't, i'm not justifying what he did i'm saying like there are things that led to it which are stupid but it's like in the moment you're making a snap decision and there's the feelings in that party at the time where people so, kind of like being out of it and not really paying attention to what they were doing there's that too yeah we were yeah. all kind of in a bit of a stupor and i mean oh, like well, you see you say that but uh, i'm a, I, of course what um what uh what moment what momentary decision led to uh jensen torturing the child <laughs> i think it was just seeing he was just rubbing a boy's face in some broken glass yeah that was all it was it was just a, it was again, I mean, a scare tactic. Phyllis did worse. He killed two people in that house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he and killed them all. And still thought he had like a moral upper ground. That honestly, that was the thing that I think choked me the most about that whole scenario. I'm sorry, Aiden, but it still chokes me to this day about it. It's like, yeah, Jensen might have killed a kid. Phyllis killed a, a mother in front of his, in front of her child and then killed the child right after. He or, sent no, the child afterwards and bade her to come and get revenge like yeah. someone had once done to him. So he, he made a monster. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, that's okay. That's fine. No, no, no. I didn't think that was okay. The problem was I was in character. Yeah. And in character, the only reason Lixton even knew about this was because... Jules was watching. Yeah, Jules, Jules being kept Jared's on. character. And J- Jules was who watching. Who was like also out of, out of it. He was like, he will tell you his own mindset is that he was becoming disillusioned with his own like religious beliefs almost and watching what was happening. And all Jules informed Lixton was that the two of them had begun burning down the home and he described the screams of people from inside. He didn't actually see what was happening. But Lixton took off running. When yeah. Lixton got to the edge of the woods and fa- uh, the edge of the clearing, and saw the house burning, he was angry. He let his rage out, and Jensen decided to step out of the burning mansion covered in blood at that moment. If I could put in the thing. Yeah, there was this beautiful, poetic moment. Phyllis had ran off. Josh's character had run off after murdering people. Jensen's character standing outside looking at the blaze of the house and being like, well, this was a complete waste of time. <laughs> and just like, I, I remember sitting there and like, what up. have I done? Why? Why? Like, let's and, that meme of Anakin after killing Mace when, what have I done? <laughs> and then Lixton runs up after hearing the story from Jules, finds him. And just as they're facing off, Jensen's like starting to put forth the words of like, I don't know what happened here. I didn't mean to do it this. I didn't mean for it to turn out this way. I leaned in over to Aiden and just went, it smells like barbecue. I've been meaning to ask, what does that actually so, mean, by the basically, way? Basically, why, why did that light you up? <laughs> back when they were ancient, the, sav- the ancient savage barbarians of his tribe used to burn the villages and have barbecue. <laughs> Because people would burn alive in the villages. Gotcha. And they to celebrate it till today. They have an actual barbecue for to celebrate their victories. Yeah. yeah. But it's always attached to that meaning. And then gotcha. Lixton smells real barbecue for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it triggered him. That makes sense. Okay, that's why I was like, "What the hell?" And that's the thing. It was Lixton PTSD on top of 
Like, I've been managing Phylus. I accept that this is Phylus. I know that I might have to one day kill Phylus. What the hell, Jensen? <laughs> and just, I lost control of the table. Yeah, you did in that moment. You had such good control. I was like, you're like, you tried oh, to end the session and I told you, but I'm angry now. <laughs> and you yeah. both rolled initiative and then did the numbers until Jensen died. I didn't even have to say anything. Yeah, we kept going back and forth. I mean, and uh, the thing, the, the whole combat, like, I was not wanting to do the combat. Like, I really didn't want to do trying, it. I was trying, I was like, should I just say stop, stop, stop? What do I do? You can. They just went at it. You, I was you, like, I would, nah, just let it play out naturally. Yeah. I mean, Jensen didn't even want to fight. Like, he really didn't. He was doing more so to defend himself, and he was trying to do non-lethal things mm -hmm. to take out Lixton. That's why he's using, like, bludgeoning things where it's not as lethal and he's you know setting up a field to try and deter him from attacking but he's in a rage so of course he's not gonna care mm -hmm. I, like there is a single a single move I could have done that would have ended it quickly but I didn't want to do it because again like it, it's a weird it was a weird moment where it's like you know he made a mistake and was there a turning it. point where you're like oh he might actually kill me um when he could do the charge and when he charged across and tanked that entire field of stuff and then killed me on that turn that's when i was like or right before he killed me on that turn i was like if i survive this i have to end it and i really don't want to do it because i'm going to kill aiden uh or kill lixton and the move maneuver was essentially a tele telekinetic grasp that i could make it so we'd have to roll with disadvantage to save and then I could yeet him into the burning building and essentially cr crush him with the burning fire. And that would have killed him. Instead, Instead he, 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 he tanked a 96 run through force damage and um, <clears throat> just laid into you with a magic hammer. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. That was how that ended, yeah. Yeah. That was like a solemn day. I remember mm -hmm. the next session. The the one thing that, that I wasn't like, I needed to get that out. I needed to put that on the table and present that to them to be like, okay, this ends now. And I knew you could tank it. The problem was I was not expecting the, you, you hit zero, you instantly die. That's that true. is not the core mechanic. No, the core mechanic is you hit zero and you go unconscious. Anytime a character dies in one of my games, because I don't know if, if it's happened in my games more than others, but I just know that I have gotten the chance to ask for people's character sheets. I've had two characters die in, in the entire time I've played a game. Uh, one was Matt's and one was yours. And in your oh, campaign yeah. was the most that I've seen somebody die. What? Are you sure about that? We could, we could talk about the multiple deaths in... Uh... In your current campaign. <laughs> Are you permadead? Ain't permadead. Exactly. Yeah. I'm talking about the hand over your character sheet. I'm talking about the, now. you're making a new thing now, yeah. yeah I've had to do a couple. <laughs> I've had to do two. That's it. I've had to do one for Matt's oh campaign. God. It was on my own terms. And then I had Jensen. That was it. Well, actually, you know what? The Holy third shit, one was dude, Tiberius. The, the Jackrabbits day. The day the Jackrabbits attacked them. And I took out Matt's character and Aiden's character in like one fell swoop. <laughs> That was the devil in that one. So. <laughs> that's rough. But that's again, a, that's a dice issue. Yeah. That's And that's just the way it landed. Yeah. I, Matt's was too, actually. Yeah. And you know what? That's how my first character died. Tarnus died in a 1v1 against a CR 14 at level 10, like an idiot. 
and it came down to literally one dice roll. If I had actually successfully rolled that one last hit, then I would have. He wouldn't have died, but he didn't. One thing that I do try to do between players on my table is like, I feel like betrayal and intrigue are just part of the game. I don't like discourage it, and so. But the one thing I do in place of that is I just go. You don't roll dice between players. Yeah. If you're gonna lie to him, lie to his face. Yeah, he's right here. <laughs> I disagree with that just because there is the aspect of the more you want to get in character, the more the character might be better at that lie. That's true. That's You're true. not wrong. But the other thing, though, is Contextually, that yeah. even if you roll it, when the person says it, it's still going to come off the same. So even though you might have the roll and it might say you have no idea... You're going to be suspicious of them anyways. And that's the thing. That's and where... And that's where metagaming comes in. And metagaming is so prevalent, unfortunately. And as much as everybody here tries to pull, like, turn it off, you don't fully turn it off. Yeah. It's impossible. And metagaming is when you use your knowledge as you, the player, yeah. to inform the actions of the character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a time like, and place where you can use it. You can always recall that, like, these characters weren't always meant to be roleplay. Like we said about 1E. Yeah. So they were just game mechanics and then people added personality on top of this 100 percent. but because of the new edition and what it you know what it encourages you to do that's what happens i don't disagree with getting rid of the role between players when it comes to like conversational points and persuasion because it it really does come down to how do you word it right that one that 20 doesn't matter mm-hmm. i could say something and you could be like, yeah, that's total crap. Yeah, of course. And yep. just because your your character rolled it and like believed it doesn't mean you're going to lean into it. Yeah, we were talking weird. about player types earlier. I noticed that the two types of players that come to the table, it's a spectrum between gamer and actor. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. a gamer just wants to do all the effects that are on the sheets. The actor wants to inhabit the role. And people fall on the spectrum. Sometimes they they go from one end to the other. I've definitely seen people go from being a gamer to being an actor or vice versa as well. Usually it's just one of these two things. These are the two kind of energies that you'd have to balance when you're running a game that you want to be exciting for your players as gamers. They want to do cool stuff. They want to roll the thing and felt like they did it. And then there's also the idea that you want them to participate in your story and your world in a way that is fun and immersive for everyone yeah including you the dm yeah if you're not immersed in your own story then it's a so I'm a like, dead story and that part to me is like because it's the part i live in it almost feels more important mm-hmm. a lot of the time so for me is like if it's in the way of the immersion i don't want to to get in that way yeah and in the same sense in when it comes to the games the easy way i've found to do is just like rule of cool yeah, i love the rule of cool it just it makes it so that you can have such better thematics and much more satisfying like conclusions to things aiden what is the rule of cool uh essentially if it is more impactful in the story to be described in a certain way or to bend the rules slightly in order to make a more creative use of a spell you would usually allow it for the sake of completing a better arc or telling the better tale yeah if something like, is like cool. the spectral hands at- for for matt when he would death touch people that's that's a rule of cool moment if it is something that the player asks you and it is not technically allowed by the rules or technically shouldn't be allowed but is quite literally cooler than if you didn't do that you are inclined as a dm to say yes Oh yeah, 
I generally try to stay still within the realms of limitation. Yeah, like it's but creative uses of spells more often <clears throat> than completely creating something new. You out can't of the suddenly yeah. decide that your character has a nuclear weapon. Yeah. No. 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 So but, we usually do it within the bounds of possibility anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, if my character knows X, does that mean he might know Y? Mm. Rule of cool? Sure. Yeah. Or, hey, I know the spell doesn't describe it this way, but can I have giant angel wings sprout from my back when I cast it? And yeah, I feel sure, like cool. that's that's almost like D&D's Supreme Court ruling that allows you to do homebrew. Yeah. Yeah. So long as it's cohesive and impactful and fun in the and game, fitting. there's nothing that should really stop you from being able to make up your own things. Yeah, exactly. Which is why, like, none of my campaigns have ever been from the book. I've never actually run one from a book either. I've only run it, ran it from the core rule set and whatever, whatever I've written. I've read into the Cthulhu Mythos Pathfinder book that I bought, but even that, like, I've nowhere near in, into any of it. Like, I just used it for a bit of inspiration and fact-finding, and that was it. Yeah. Um, Jake, you, on the other hand, like me, I tend to make everything up in my head. And then when it comes time, I'll like open a TXT file and you know write write a few notes and then Dude, drop TXT? it in the chat. Yeah, text oh just raw text God. files. That's what I do all my notes in. I can never do that. You on the other hand, Jake, when you you invented your own game very quickly. I I did. Yeah, we beta tested that for like six years as well, and then we took about a year and a or two year hiatus thanks to um, COVID, and then. I'm starting to kind of get back to the latest final rendition of what the new system is set to look like. Um, and it's supposed to be something very similar to the D20, not in the sense that it's the D20 system, because it's, it's different. It's like, it's a mold. So although this is being applied to a sci-fi game initially, I am planning on a fantasy game. Could you use this for a mythos game? Like a, like a, a Lovecraftian horror game? 100%. You could use it for a noir game. In fact, it would actually be really transferable to a noir game since a lot of the skills that are set in the sci-fi one, they're, they're ranged weapon skills. That's one of the sci-fi genres to take noir too. Yeah. You know. And and that's the thing. It's, it's meant to be whatever you want. You can make it whatever you want. You can make whatever setting you want. Hey, you want to run something in the Fallout universe using this system? Do it. You want to run something in the Witcher universe doing this? Do it. You want to run something in like the Kung Fu setting? Hell yeah, man. Make your Kung Fu panda. I don't give a shit. Do it. You both have seen a decent amount of my world in the both technological and fantasy aspects that I go into. Uh, Mm -hmm. I do uh, borrow a lot from other cultures and try to build a diverse world and have a reason for everything being where it is. Uh... You're a 5e guy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. True and true. Uh, I've played Pathfinder and I still do. Like, I have a lot of Pathfinder games ongoing even. Um, I like 5e. I just had more fun whenever I played Pathfinder. Pathfinder definitely has a lot more character options, but I think 5e just with the more simplified skill list and combat, it it's becomes friendly. more of a role play game and it's a little bit more uh, beginner friendly. It's yeah. very beginner friendly by comparison. And yet, on the flip side, you have people who just hate the how simplistic it is. Like Jenna, for example, um, my fiance. Uh, I introduced her to tabletops through Pathfinder. She freaking hates Five E. She finds it so boring. She just doesn't feel like her character can be unique. And it's like really like you're stuck in a mold. 
That's what she generally feels with it. One of my favorite things that I ever did was when we played Pathfinder for for the big game that we ended up doing, and I was like, do Gestalt, which meant oh that you God. took two classes You're the only person by I know default. who has been able to successfully run a campaign all the way through playing Gestalt. The thing I that tried I and it. I failed I hard. attempted to try it for one coming up, and I might actually... Gestalt, I... by the way, for the listeners at home, take two classes... Uh, take the best sta- uh, best por- portions of each of them and then combine them together and continuously scale your level ups as if you're using the best portions of so each of them. So instead of being just a barbarian or just a fighter, you could be a fighter barbarian. You could be a ranger barbarian. You could be a ranger rogue. You, you could be a sorcerer and a monk, for example. The thing or... I really loved about it was we talked a little bit earlier about how like these classes tend to become personality types. I liked that Gestalt gave you the way out to, like, I want you to have a personality. Yeah, rather than it just being, oh, I'm a paladin, so therefore I'm a paladin. But that's the thing. You could already do that with multi-class in the base game, and there was a lot of uh, encouraging combat. There was multi-classing that. on top of the Gestalt that we did, too. Ah, that did happen, glorious yeah. Glorious times. Yeah, I That is what that. made Babadook so <laughs> yeah, that's why like at one point with tiberius i actually had raf give me like my god item and my own shit was already better <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like can you really power scale past this now because i've made something disgusting yeah when you have a more. gun by the way people that can deal over 2000 damage in a fucking round that's when funny, you know you're you're already past that it's point that despite yeah having so much fun at these complicated levels after yeah. having taken such a long break from it it's like i crave to go back to simplicity exactly and i just want to be another elf in the woods again and this is why i go for 5e because it's just like pathfinder it innately becomes that the early levels are tru- are trudging through the mud and then you just reach a power spike where you are now gods that's and what happens though in D and D as well. In D and D, it takes a lot longer. It takes it, longer for sure. But I mean, the power spike difference. Level seven in Pathfinder is where I say that's where you hit the power spike. That's mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, you can start to do some really crazy stuff. And in five E, it's more like level ten is where you're like, yeah, I'm kind of at you know the I'm at my my big turning point. Mm-hmm. Like level level seven, it's a good turning point. Is it amazing? No. But level 10 that's when you're like oh i can do some stuff now mm-hmm. i never focused on the levels i was always just like how can i get more story power it, it, i'm you just know? talking for like those power yeah. gamers and the stuff out there like where, where the big changeover and like how does it relate to you know the role play setting and like the, that feeling of wanting it to be simplistic there's a guy um on youtube it's xp to level three or whatever mm-hmm. he talks a lot about like level three being like the money like kind of level to be at it's because you can still tell an interesting story without them having the most ridiculous powers yeah also level three is where you get where every single class will finally have their archetype which means everyone has def- decided not only what character they are but what their specialization is and I, how they will define that character i think forward. one of the best explanations on the internet of D how to play it how to do it well is by Matt Colville, who's on YouTube. He's like, he put out you a You fuckers really... thought he was going to say Matt Mercer. No, Matt Matt I don't care at all for Mercer. I, it's not, I'm nothing against him. I just don't 
care. I can't get involved. I can't do it. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, there's nothing against that either. Yeah, but Matt Colville, I feel like just someone who genuinely has like a really deep love of the game that's like almost historically rooted and, you know, he's come to enjoy different parts of it. What's what's really funny is that I'm sure if he ever played my game, he would hate it. Oh, 100%. Yeah. He would absolutely easily. hate it. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know what's interesting I, I heard after... So the reason I said I didn't want to be an under under the um, Wizards of the Coast OGL earlier, by the way, is because there was a huge fiasco for the newcomers here where there was, like, some things that was going to affect content creators and a lot of people in the community. Matt Colville's one of them, actually. Uh, it sparked a desire to get out of the field, uh, out of D&D for that specific thing, and they're now making their own game. Matt Colville is currently developing his own game. At Colville point. is Colville. doing this. Colville is doing this. Okay, that's well, interesting. For that. It's an interesting thing. I can't wait to see what happens with it. Best um, of luck. Yeah, I mean... When you think about tabletop games, like we've mentioned a few today, like Pathfinder, Shadowrun, and like Starfinder and stuff... Most people, when they think of a tabletop game, though, there's the only one that really is going to be focused on, and that's D&D. That's the Forest Creek Podcast. You can find us at our favorite places on Instagram, Spotify, and YouTube at the Forest Creek. That's youtube.com slash at the real Forest Creek. Our website's coming up very soon, www.theforestcreekweb.com. We're dropping a blockchain handle very soon. That's right. You'll be able to find us on Web3. That's the Forest Creek blockchain. We'll let you know when that drops very soon. Other than that, we're also on Substack at theforestcreek.substack.com. And feel free to reach out to us at any time, theforestcreek at gmail.com, where we'll happily reply. We're always interested in knowing what you guys have to say. So comment, like, share, subscribe, follow tell your grandma all the fun things and we'll see you next time